Thank you, because I'm so short, I have to stand up a little bit so that I can see you all and let you see me as well. Okay, um, it's a real pleasure and honor for me to be standing here at this beautiful historic church uh, to preach the word of God um, from the uh, prophet Habakkuk. And today, uh, we're going to examine how the prophet actually undergoes a dynamic spiritual trans transformation of his faith from doubt to triumph in faith. And that's what we need today as well, don't we? So if you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Habakkuk, and then we can follow it uh, as we go along. But let us pray first. Dear Lord, we thank you for your unfailing uh, love towards us. And thank you for calling us to be your children through your son, Jesus Christ. Teach us your way and also give us a heart of wisdom as we meditate on your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Habakkuk is a unique book among the prophetic literatures. Not only does it differ from the other books in form and also in style, but more importantly, it differs from the other book in content as well. Usually in the prophetic literatures, we see the prophets accusing the Israelites of sinning against God's law and thus deserve the right judgment from God. But Habakkuk doesn't have any of those prophetic accusations against the Israelites. And also, Habakkuk always stands on the side of the populace, and he actually complains to the Lord of all these apparent inactivity in the face of uh, the social injustice. And the whole book here is also set in the form of a lament. I do have uh, the book demarcated into three scenes here, as you can see on the slides. Each scene contains a somewhat concentric structures so as to highlight the Lord's speech and also his actions. And read it this way, we can see that the book, the center of the book actually falls on chapter two, verses two to five. And we'll take a closer look later on. Habakkuk begins his book with a complaint against the Lord. He says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry to you violence, but you do not save? He uses the typical lament uh, rhetoric to accuse, the God, to accuse God for not responding to his cry for help. And also, it shows that he must have been requesting divine help for a long time, for he asked how long, so it must have been a long time. Then he describes the mayhem in his society by using the words such as iniquities, trouble, destruction, violence, strife, and contention. And all these are happening because the instigators and the perpetrators of all these crimes are probably from those uh, in the leadership position from within the Judean society. For he also mentioned that the law is paralyzed and justice either never prevails or comes out twisted. 
Now, the ones who can cause justice not to come out right are likely the leaders in the society. We can easily relate to Habakkuk's experience, for when we look around, we see that the world is getting more and more violent, and the crime committed are more and more blatant and also blatant. Just look at our own city. Not too long ago, during the Raptors、uh, victory parade, you still remember, under the broad daylight, with so many people around, and also heavy police presence as well, some gangsters actually fired shots onto the crowd and caused quite a chaos as people ran for their lives, and also many people got hurt as a result. Every day we hear about news on gun violence. Just the past weekend, we have 14 shots, which was fired, and then 17 people got hurt as well. Not to mention sexual crimes, assaults, murders, economic extortions, and the list can go on and on. People don't seem to care or value other people's life or well-being anymore, and in some cases. Leaders in the government are actually to be blamed for a lot of the grievances as well. Just look at Syria, where its government even uses chemical weapons against their own citizens, resulting in millions of refugees who have to flee their country. And even south of our border here, in the United States, where its president bends on inciting hatred among its people. And divides the country as well, and creates instability in the society and injustice done to the most vulnerable in the society. You just have to hear all those children's cry from the border detention center. It's really heartbreaking. And in our own city, we see a pastor was mobbed, and then assaulted, and then got arrested simply because he preached at a street corner. About Jesus' love, and also died for the sinners. Yet Canada claims to be a democratic country where the freedom of speech is under the protection of our law and charter of rights. I mean, even if one may not agree with the preacher's choice of place or his ways of preaching the gospel, he would still have his right to express his view. But instead of arresting those who mobbed him, the police actually、uh, arrest him and charge him for causing a disturbance. So we could easily join the prophet in his lament to God: Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me, and there is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore. The law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. But then the Lord replies that He is doing something. But the thing He is doing is so provocative and incredulous that no one is going to believe. He is about to raise up the Babylonians to come and judge the Israelites. Wow. The Babylonians were well known for their brutality in the ancient Near East. So this is such a shocking news 
Not only is God not stopping violence, He is actually bringing in much more worse carnage. It's almost like Habakkuk is asking God to fix a leak, and God said that I am going to open up the floodgate. No wonder the prophet is so infuriated by the divine decision that, the, and he questions divine justice and also the rightness of using such a brutal agent. His rhetorical question in verse 12 here shows his disbelief. Are you not from of old, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. Here he is not questioning about God's eternal nature, but rather he is reminding God that he is the one who called their ancestor Abraham from Ur in the ancient time and that he delivered their forefathers from Egypt. Indeed, he is the Holy One of Israel, so he should not let Israel die. He then uses God's nature to argue that it is incongruous for a pure and holy God to tolerate and allow such wicked people to swallow up people more righteous than themselves. So scene one here raises the issue of theodicy and engages both Habakkuk and the Lord in dialogue. And scene two and three seek to resolve this issue. Next slide, please. Theodicy is composed of two Greek words, Thetol and decay. Now, Thetol means God and decay means justice. So the whole word means justice of God. This issue usually arises when calamity or adversity befalls a person or a community, especially when it involves the suffering of the righteous or the prosperity of the wicked. We often hear people <clears throat> complain after a disaster or a tragedy hits. Where is God? Why does God allow it to happen? Some atheists may even use this as evidence to argue that there is no God. During the Second World War in a Nazi concentration camp, the Nazis hanged two young Jewish men in front of all the Jewish prisoners. One man died right away, but the other man did not die right away and was struggling and dangling painfully up on the gallows. A prisoner stood beside a rabbi, sat in disgust. Where is God? And the rabbi replied with tears in his eyes, do you not see? He is up there with the young man. And let's be honest, even believers would have questions and doubts when facing adversity. Why does God allow it to happen to me? How is that fair? That's the reason we have so many lament psalms in our Bible. But from my research on this issue, God almost never answered this issue of theodicy directly. But the good news is, he is always addresses our concerns and needs. So let's read on. Scene two depicts the prophet as a watchman standing guard on the rampart, waiting for God to rebuke him and contemplating his own response. 
However, God just simply tells him to write down the vision plainly on the tablet, so that whoever who reads it may run. Now, the one who reads it, or in Hebrew, it is, it is actually calls it, are usually those messengers who would read the message and then they will run to spread the news or call out the news to all the people. Then the Lord shows him the contrast between the wicked and the righteous in verse 4. Behold the proud one, his soul is not upright within him, but the righteous will live by his faithfulness. This is the turning point of the book. Even though the Lord does not answer any of Habakkuk's theodicy question in scene one, he knows his underlying concern. Habakkuk is most concerned about the well-being of the righteous, for he keeps on lamenting that the wicked are oppressing the righteous. His question on theodicy is not to seek a philosophical answer, but rather an existential one. That is, how are the righteous ones going to survive amidst atrocity? The divine promise that the righteous will live by his faithfulness addresses its concern. How so? It assures Habakkuk that the Lord will not let the righteous perish as long as they hold on to their trust in him. Not only is this statement considered by many as the key verse of the book, its significance to both Jews and Christians cannot be overstated. Jewish rabbi Nachman ben Isaac, who is from uh, the fourth century, summed up the 613 Mosaic laws with this one commandment recorded here. And the three citations in the New Testament also attest to its importance in Christian faith. So let's take a closer look at this statement and ask some interpretive questions. In Hebrew, this statement consists only of three words, and we're going to take a look at each one of them. The first Hebrew word, versatik, means but the righteous. But who is the righteous? And what does the righteous, the word righteous, mean? The Hebrew word for righteous has two meanings. The first one has a legal meaning and is defined as this. The one who is declared innocent by the court of law is a righteous person. So in other words, if you are being taken to the court and the judge pronounced that you are innocent, then you are a righteous person. And the second meaning is to describe one who always does the right action before God. In another word, a sadiq is one who always does according to the ethical quality associating with God. Now, these two meanings have tremendous significance for us Christians as well. For Christians are the one who are declared innocent by God because of our, our Lord Jesus Christ's work. And since we are the righteous ones, then we should always act according to God's ethical will. I'll let you be the judge of how you fare in this department there. And the second word 
better munato literally means by his righteousness or in his righteousness. But the question is, by whose faithfulness does the writer refer to? The Septuagint interpret the faithfulness as God's. Let the just live by my faithfulness. More likely, though, it is the faithfulness of the righteous that is in view. Since the closest antecedent is the righteous one, and the term also contrasts with the proud in the first part of verse 2. My opinion is this. The ambiguity of his faithfulness also allows the possibility that the righteous one who persevere in his faithfulness and in God's faithfulness Sorry, let me repeat again. The righteous one who persevere in his faithful trust in God's faithfulness will live. So I try to combine the two. It is the faithfulness of the righteous also as well as the faithfulness of God's. Then the third Hebrew word, ikye, he will live, obviously does not just mean the earthly life, for we all know that we all have to die one day. Rather, it has the eternal life in view. Now, many people doubt whether Old Testament has any idea of eternal life at all. But while the concept is not as clear as in the New Testament, I'll argue that they do have some ideas about afterlife. A clear example actually can be found in Psalm 73, verses 24 to 26, where the psalmist says to God, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here the psalmist understands the frailty of, the, of his earthly body, but God will take him into glory and then he will be with God in heaven. So clearly he has eternal life in mind. Now this assurance from the Lord that the righteous will live by his faithfulness, together with the ensuing five world oracles against the wicked. Let Habakkuk see that God does have a sovereign plan and that divine justice will be upheld at the end. We won't go into details on the five world oracles, but basically, as you can see, the world oracles takes the form of a reversal of fortune, as you can see from the slide. This theme of retribution is to show that the punishment fits the crime. And also the two verses in red are to show that God's glory will fill the earth in spite of human wickedness, and that he is in full control in his holy abode despite the pandemonium in human society. This understanding of divine plan calms down Habakkuk greatly, and he changes his attitude. Now, very often we are blinded by what we see in this world, 
injustice in the society, hatred and distrust among people, incompetent and corrupt leadership, brutality and violence abound, and the list goes on. I came from Hong Kong, and when I, when I see what's happening there in these days, I feel so helpless and hopeless. The whole city is in turmoil, and, and that the whole society is so divided that friends become foes, just because they have different political views. And there is not a day that goes by without news of demonstration and disturbance. And even today, they're going to have another big one, too. How can one do in such situation? What can one do? And what is the solution? But then we forget one thing. Despite the pandemonium in our world, God is still in charge. So the best solution is to turn to God, lament to him, and ask for his mercy and help. So I'll ask you to remember Hong Kong in your prayer and pray that the Prince of Peace will bring true peace to the land and that the Holy Spirit will change the people's heart from hatred to love and understanding. Chapter 3 begins with Habakkuk's petition, asking God to revive his past deeds of salvation in Israel's history, and re to remember mercy in his wrath. Then he receives a theophanic vision, which can be divided into two parts. The first part is on chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, describes the divine ma majesty and also the consequences of God's manifestation on earth. Now, this is important, for it allays Habakkuk's earlier concern that the ferocious and fierce Babylonians are unstoppable. No matter how powerful the enemy's military might would be, it cannot compare with the divine power. And the second part, from verses 8 to 15, portrays the Lord as a warrior coming to deliver his people. This tackles the prophet's earlier complaint that the Lord is oblivious to the danger and suffering that Israel faces. As you can imagine, the theophany causes great fear and awe in Habakkuk. But at the same time, it also boosts his, his faith to such an extent that he resolves to trust the Lord regardless of his circumstances. His declaration of trust in verses 17 to 19, which the brother just read for us at the beginning, demonstrates the living out of a righteous person in the face of extreme atrocity, to trust and to wait patiently for the Lord, to rejoice in the Lord and to draw strength from him, even when all necessities of life are deprived. Now, I don't know what kind of difficulties you are facing in your life. Perhaps it's a health issue, or a financial problem, or a broken relationship, or simply disheartened by our current world situation. What 
can we learn from Habakkuk's experience as we face adversity in life? Here are some lessons. Next slide, please. That we can learn from this book. It is perfectly all right to lament to God in time of adversity. In fact, it was Israel's lament that Exodus ever occurred. God told Moses that He heard their cry and that brought Him down to deliver them. This is recorded in Exodus chapter three, verses seven to nine. See, lament gives us a proper channel to bring our concerns, doubts. Hurt and even frustration and anger to our supreme Judge, the Lord. Habakkuk's words at times sounds audacious, but he is honest about his own feelings and he pours out his soul before the Lord. He clings onto God to complain to Him, and his tactic seems to work, for God responds to him. And as I said before. God almost never answers our question on theodicy. We often ask the question, "Why?" When we encounter adversity, "Why me? Why didn't God do something? Why this? Why that?" But does it ever come to mind that we may be asking the wrong question? For God seldom responds to those questions. Rather, He addresses our concerns and needs. And always answer with a who, W H O. Let me explain. He reminds us of who he really is, and that he is the one who is behind all human affairs. And above all, he is the one who loves us and who is in control of our life and also our human society. Indeed, he is the one who can deliver us. And give us strength to prevail over adversity. Since God is the Creator and the One from eternity, He has a sovereign plan which may take a long time to accomplish. Meanwhile, we must admit our own finitude and should not expect to get a quick fix to our problems, for God. Has a, an appointed time for everything. We must let God be God, and accept that His ways are higher than our ways, and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. From my research on biblical passages that deal with the issue of theodicy, I found one common element. Which helps the biblical writers greatly when they are facing crisis in their lives, and this is it: they either meditate on God's past deeds in Israel's history, such as in the cases of Habakkuk and Psalm 77, and possibly Psalm 73, or they contemplate divine majestic power in creation, as in the case. Of Job, the reason I think is that instead of focusing on their current situation, which seems to have no way out, 
meditation on God's past deeds and on creation allows people to lift their eyes and concentrate on God and his magnificent deeds. This change of perspective let people see from God's viewpoint that all the sufferings and chaos are transient and is limited in scope. Thus, they find comfort and new hope on God's future deliverance. This new experience with God then renews their faith and rejuvenates their strength and their trust in the Lord to persevere through their suffering and dire situation. And since we live in a fallen world where catastrophe, tragedy, violence, and injustice are prevalent, unpredictable, and unavoidable, the issue of theodicy is a common universal question raised by people suffering from anomalies of life. Hence, the message of Habakkuk is just as relevant and appropriate today as in his day. In closing, I would like to leave you with a testimony of a Christian doctor. During the spring of 2003, SARS outbreak in Hong Kong, a hospital was particularly hard hit by the disease. Many medical staffs became sick themselves from taking care of the patients. Among them, there was a lady Christian doctor who unselfishly volunteered to work in the dirty teams, so-called, to look after the most severely sick patients. She helped and encouraged many patients to come to Christ. Unfortunately, she was infected by the disease as well. Even on her dying bed, she videotaped her message to her fellow workers and encouraged them not to despair. She told them that she had no regret for what she did and even if the Lord wanted to take her home. Upon her passing, all the media and the newspapers broadcasted her testimony, and many were touched by her life. When the chaplain of the hospital saw the mass of people coming to pay their respect, he said to the chief medical officer of the hospital, who happened to be her cousin, look at all these people. But her cousin said, somehow I would rather see her alive than seeing all these people. One thing that really bothers me is this. Why didn't God hear our prayers and spare her life? Why didn't he work miracle? But miracle has already happened, the chaplain answered. Look at all these lives that are touched by her and all the lost souls who have come to Christ because of her. Indeed, God does have a plan, and his plans for us are for our welfare and not for harm, so as to give us a future and hope. If we believe that he is the creator and the sovereign Lord who creates the universe in his perfect wisdom and who cares and is in control of our human society, then we can put our trust in him and heed the message, the righteous shall live.
by his faithfulness. So let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful love, for it is because of your love and your faithfulness that we are not consumed. And we pray that you continue to be with us and to guide us how to persevere in adversity and also to protect us in this turbulent world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.